As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Everybody and welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got Chris Lento with me today. Chris, how are things in Boston? Uh, things are kind of strange right now. We're right in the middle of the, the COVID pandemic, so it's kind of dead, but weather's good and, you know, life goes on. Yeah, yeah. So if the listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, probably my website. It's uh, emcapitalgroup.com or email. Chris Lento at emcapitalgroup.com. Awesome. Now that we've got the important stuff out the way, let's talk about some things. Give the listeners a little bit about your background and what your current focus is. So um, I've been doing multifamily investing for about 15 years, uh, full-time for three years. Uh, prior to that, I was um, in the aerospace and defense industry. So I actually did rocket science <laughs> to, to some degree. Um, and it's not all of it's as hard as people think. And um, so kind of did passive stuff on the side, or not passive stuff, but kind of smaller deals on my own on the side. And then uh, graduated into larger properties. Currently I'm looking at um, kind of Southeastern US and Midwest properties, uh, 100, 100 unit range, uh, class Bs, kind of mainly my focus. And um, I'm also doing some uh, smaller condo conversions of some of my deals that I have in Boston. So actually those are like on hold right now, everything in Boston's a full stop. So they're just sitting there racking up holding costs. Um, but that's, that should, you know, get on track as soon as things open up. So that's sort of where I'm at right now, just kind of gauging what happens next. Yeah. I think everybody's looking for the crystal ball, but it doesn't. Right. So we just got to wait and see what, uh, I know you told me you've got two different missteps you want to chat about. I think I want to go to the juicy one first, right? And so let's talk about plumbing, man. Have you had <laughs> plumbing? I have had issues with plumbing. So um, it's an exciting topic, right? Plumbing. Who doesn't love toilets and, and plumbing? Um, so on a deal that I bought in Tallahassee, it was a 24-unit deal, uh, 1988 build. And during the, uh, the due diligence, Actually, prior to the due diligence, I, I had found out that it had polybutylene piping. So I'm sure you've come across this. Every kind of decade of construction in the last 50 years has some sort of thing that, that is a major problem, right? So there's like galvanized piping in the 50s and 60s. There's aluminum wiring in the 70s. And the 80s had, among other things, polybutylene piping. So it's a water supply line piping. It's sort of like today's PEX. Uh, but it's brittle. So it, it has these pinhole pipes that form and you sort of never know when they're gonna explode. I mean, in short. So if you if you have a property, um, a lot of times the lenders look for this, like they, they wanna know like, oh, is there any um, aluminum wiring in the property? Is there any poly B or polybutylene piping in the property? So I found out early on that this property did have polybutylene piping in some of the units, but it was not disclosed. So, um, so I knew that, so I kind of put that in my underwriting as like, this 
you know, a certain number of units have this and I have to figure out how to get, how to deal with it. And I kind of putting that in said that I think it's still a good deal. So, um, you know, when I approached the owner, um, you know, going through the sales process, I didn't raise it and say, hey, this wasn't disclosed. And it was part of our negotiations. So I kind of went in with eyes open on that. So um, now that's re relatively open, meaning like I might have a problem down the road. I need to budget in some CapEx to fix this over five years kind of thing. Um, and, you know, the fix is really repiping like going through every unit that has the problem and changing out the supply line piping, which depending on, you know, access is, you know, maybe 2000 to $3,000 per unit. So it's not insignificant. Um, so I buy the property or you know, closing the property on a Friday and I'm on vacation actually in Denver visiting a family and uh, Sunday more, Monday morning, I get a call that there's been a burst. Second floor unit, uh, pipe is, supply line pipe in the ceiling, burst, takes the ceiling down to that unit, and then uh, serious damage to the two units below that unit. So uh, you know, day three of ownership, three units pretty much down, and they're all occupied. So. so what do you do when that happens? So to start, um, you know, I had a good property manager in place. Well, I, now I know they were good, but they were new. I just bought the property. Um, so I immediately talked to them and they, without even, you know, talking to me first, that immediately called Service Pro. So whenever there's a water damage situation, there's a couple companies like water remediation companies, but I think service pros basically the only one I've ever heard of. They're national and they come in with, you know, water vacuums, dehumidifiers, they'll, they'll gut, um, you know, take the wet drywall from the ceiling to expose the pipe so the plumber can go in and actually fix the leak. So, you know, property manager turned off the water, plumber came, fixed the leak, you know, basically patched the leak, didn't fix the problem, but and then I got in there with dehumidifiers and uh, you know shop backs effectively um, and blowers and that's sort of like you know triage like what you know how do you stop the bleeding basically um, after that I immediately got in touch with uh, a private insurance adjuster a sorry a public insurance adjuster and um, I'm, it depends you know who's listening to this but um, this is a concept I came across probably 10 years ago and it's been invaluable so sort of like if you're going to go to court to defend yourself for like a criminal case you wouldn't go with the prosecutor's lawyer right well when you're fighting your when you're not fighting when you're talking to your insurance company about an insurance claim and i would say in my opinion if it's over say like a three thousand dollar claim it's good to have a an insurance adjust so that on your side and that's called a public adjuster. So you, you know, basically call a public adjuster. I talk to my property manager, talk to the, the closing attorney, basically talk to all my contacts in the area. This was in Tallahassee and got the name of a couple of public adjusters. So they effectively serve as your, your insurance adjuster. They take 10% of whatever you get from the insurance company for the claim. 
and they kind of handle the process and argue with the insurance company's adjuster to make sure that you're getting, you know, all you're entitled to. That was really the first step. So, I mean, that sounds like a blank check is written when something like that happens. I want to make sure I got it. How many units were impacted overall? Uh, it ended up being three units. Okay. So one, I mean, the whole ceiling fell. And then the units below, one of the closets collapsed, closets and bathrooms, ceilings collapsed. And the other one just had sort of livable water damage in the ceiling. And did you lose those three residents or did you like put them in a hotel and bring them back or something? In the end, I lost two of the residents. So what happened was uh, the people with the major collapse, um, it was two roommates and it's a two bedroom, two bath. So they're very separate, like, you know, almost like two suites. And it was one sort of suite that collapsed. And that guy was out of town for like three weeks, luckily. So his roommate said like, you know, I can still live in my part while you fix all this. And then as it took a lot of effort, he was, he just couldn't deal with it. So he just moved out. And, and, you know, I offered to put him in a hotel, but he's like, I don't, I don't want a hotel. I want an apartment. So, so it, it was somewhat amicable or, you know, we, I did my best to help him out. And I think I gave him some money towards, you know, obviously his security deposit was returned in full. Uh, and um, there was some restitution made for damage. Um, and then, uh, the unit, one of the units below, mo I moved to a different unit that had came available. And then the other unit with minor damage was able to be sort of remediated in place. A lot of people want to be profitable multifamily operators, but lack the knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital to be successful. They often try to overcome these challenges out of order, slowing or eliminating their ability to get their next deal done. We've developed a framework that allows them to gain the knowledge they need to find profitable deals. When they do, they create the time and location freedom, as well as the generational wealth they desire for their family. The Myers methods of multifamily investing have proved to be the fastest way to establish credibility and properly grow an apartment portfolio. If you want to know more about our four-step process, jump over to MyersMethods.com to get our free four-step guide to getting into multifamily investing. Let's get back to the episode. Got it. Got it. So did insurance cover all of that stuff or did you guys have to go in pocket? Well, so it took probably three months to kind of iron out all the insurance. Insurance pretty much pays the, um, like they'll definitely pay all your water remediation stuff, like the service pro bill. They'll pay that pretty much, almost upfront. Um, but everything else, you know, they kind of do the insurance dance where pretty soon they offer you a check, like, hey, we'll give you a 20 grand check like today, but because they don't want, a, you know, a larger check in the future. So it took about three months with the public adjuster and go back and forth and the estimates. So it was out of pocket for the near term stuff. Um, and then I would say in the end, it's sort of hard to say whether they covered all the damage because they took the opportunity to renovate all those units. So, um, you know, new cabinets, countertops, um, 
so it's, you know, it, I would say they covered most, definitely the damage plus a good portion of the upgrade. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so here's a magic question. And if you have an answer to this, I'm going to be amazed. Did you make a process change to prevent this from happening again? Well, I certainly expedited my plan up to change out the piping. And I uh, kind of have a plumber on call now who is taking all any sign of a leak very seriously. And you know, we have sort of implemented a repiping plan. Um, one thing I haven't done, and I'm kind of in the process of doing right now, is coming up with a an in-place repiping plan. So figuring out a way that we can get the piping done while people are in the unit, which is pretty much impossible right now that we're all locked down, but um, I think doable. I think I lost you. No, I, I I think that is amazing um, using that engineering background. <laughs> <laughs> and so that will move us into the other misstep that you're willing to share with the audience. And so let's talk about that one a little bit. Yeah, so, so this one wasn't as major, um, but it was it had to do with the lending on the same property. So this was my first um, agency loan. So I had a broker. Um, um, that I had a relationship with who did agency financing and he also did uh, commercial backed security financing and then a number of local, local banks. So he was truly sort of a broker. And then I had another relationship with um, really a Freddie lender. Um, so I was kind of going through the process. I had the propagator contract and I was talking to both of them and it turned out that the mortgage broker um, actually used the Freddie lender as his agency financer. So I effectively got two different calls from two different people that I had relationships with saying, hey, are you shopping this around? Because we're, we're like the same group effectively, um, which was a difficult conversation because the broker was offering me a product, which was a good Freddie Mac loan that had a, a 1% fee on it. And then the Freddie Mac originator was offering me pretty much the same product with no fee. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously um, I went with the lower fee option, but it created an awkward situation. Um, so that was a lesson learned, kind of figure out where you're, if you're going through a broker, where do they go for their different debt sources and make sure you don't overlap that. <laughs> so did you tell them that, Hey, like, one is less fee than your fee. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it was still, a, you know, a tough conversation. What did they say when you share with them that you were hip to the game? It wasn't so much that I was hip to the game. It was that, um, you know, Fannie and Freddie have their designated loan providers that, and there's not an infinite number of those there's a certain number for each region and so one of the brokers i was going to was was one of those and the uh, who that really just dealt in fannie and freddie products and the other was more of a broker that does a large range of products one of which he'll do fannie or freddie so you're sort of uh, i guess what i learned from that was if you know that you are going to go kind of conventional agency financing just go directly to an you know 
an agency loan provider and, and not a broker. But if you have a more complicated deal, you need bridge financing, you have low occupancy, you know, then a, a broker that has a lot of different um, financing options is, is you know, an approach. Got it. So the final question. So I guess the second, well, the second aspect of this just um, was, so then, so we, you know, go to closing and, and three days before closing, um, the Freddie Mac underwriters do their final kind of underwriting. And rather than underwriting a repair allowance or a repair cost of 860 per unit, they look at the historicals for this property because it had prior, it had a prior financing from Freddie Mac and historicals are 1250 per unit. So they apply the historicals, I mean, really last minute, three days before closing. And my loan to value changes from 75 to 71. And I have to come to the table with another $65,000. So that was probably the bigger wrinkle in this, this financing story. Um, so I, basically pushed back. I went back to the broker, the sales broker who really had all the numbers and had all the uh, owner's information and said, Hey, you know, fix this, convince this lender that, that the costs are only 850. And so we sort of went back and forth and it was two weeks of kind of holding out. And I've been told by a number of people that a lot of times that they'll meet you in the middle, you know, if it's you're saying 850 and industry standards 850, but the lender says 1250, they'll kind of come in around a thousand. But no, they, they held firm. So I had to go get another $65,000 at, you know, bring to, the, bring to the table at closing. How'd you do that? I um, tapped into a home equity line. Wow. Yeah. Still so luckily I had that available, but really that was for a lot of CapEx. I had, I had some money set aside for CapEx improvements on the property that just all went into this closing. So now I had to kind of come up with other fine, other money for the, the CapEx going down the road, which pushed the timeline on a lot of things. I was planning to do more unit upgrades over the first three years than I'm doing because of that. Man. Well, got that, guys. Make sure you got a home equity line in the bag just in case you need an extra 60. <laughs> well, one thing I didn't, didn't learn on that was uh, find out what the current, who's financed the current property. So you know, your seller, what's, who's their loan with? And if it's, if you're getting financing from that same group, know that they will have the historical financials. Ah. So, so you could either, you know, let's just say the historical financials don't look great. Switch agencies. If it's a Freddie loan, go with Fannie. Cause they're going to look at your numbers and industry standards rather than the actuals because they don't have the actuals. Um, also, just, if, you know, if you're going to stay with the same lender, be aware of that, that they're going to look at the actuals because they have them. You know, they require you to report your financials on a, at least annual basis. So be aware of that and expect kind of deviations uh, at closing. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, that is key right there. Um, so the last question, and you may have just given them to us, but what's your words of wisdom to the listeners? Um, I would say for problems, reach out, right? Like there's a lot of nuances and things that can go wrong in, in you know, multifamily investing, 
but rarely are they new. Rarely is someone else not already dealt with the situation. So, um, you know, check out podcasts, check out other people's websites, call investor, other investors that may have gone through similar situations. Um, go on bigger pockets and post a question. Uh, just reach out because there's a lot of um, a lot of solutions out there that maybe you wouldn't have thought of, and uh, it can save you a lot of time and, and money. Beautiful, Chris. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to share with our listeners, and we'll talk soon, man. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor, give us a five-star rating, give us a review, and share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with us.